composer John Gibson has set himself a huge task, conveying the power and dominance of the Catholic Church in Renaissance Europe through sound and music. Rather than relying on existing sound effects for the Auckland Theatre Company's upcoming production of Bertolt Brecht's The Life of Galileo, John's been out there recording bells and even the Auckland Town Hall pipe organ. He's also asked his friend, clean guitarist David Kilgar, to come up with a riff to play over a mass from 1610. John's also converting the ASB Waterfront Theatre into surround sound. For more than three decades now, John's been composing for theatre, dance, TV and also film, most recently for the upcoming New Zealand feature Coming Home in the Dark. I asked John Gibson what attracted him to sound design and composition. I was a musician and I was um, pretty sick of uh, too many notes and I wanted to find out or be involved with music that had to have a specific meaning and actually had to do some real work in terms of telling stories. Or I, I was just fascinated to try and rediscover what music was. Um, I was lucky enough to fall into an extraordinary situation. Um, Rari Palatini, I was playing in a restaurant. He came to the restaurant uh, as, um, in Dunedin and asked me to be the musical director of the theatre, which is <laughs> quite bizarre. Um, and so I fell into it, really. But, I mean, my passion has always been just to see what the precise sounds are that actually really gives meaning to to a story and to a piece of work and to try and make music from a, from that perspective rather than, you know, like a more formal analytical kind of approach. When you're composing for live performance like theatre, say, or dance, mm. do you, is it really a very similar approach to what you might do for film or TV? No, it's quite different. The main thing is that um, you use your imagination a lot more in theatre and so you have to be much more accurate with the kind of worlds you do You've actually got to listen to actors as if they're musicians and you have to listen to the stories. If it's, uh, everything is actually, you have to listen to where the, where the um, energy dies, the place where we need to, to look at the story from. And so the music structures the, uh, the story as much as anything else. I think it's a, that's on a very deep level as well. So, so it's, it's really a very different thing. I mean, in film you can be really, really rich, but I mean, you have to really hone it down for theatre. And I think... All of us who work in theatre a lot really, really prize the fact that it's um, such an interactive and dangerous medium and um, this, the excitement of actually bringing people together in an experience is one that's even more precious these days. It's a thing of balance too, though, isn't it? And it's a little yep. bit like talking to lighting designers. You know, so yeah. The argument can be if you, if you notice the lighting, then you're not engrossed yeah. enough in the, in the play. So what is the role of original music for theatre? I mean, dance is a bit more obvious, but say for theatre productions. You have to find the, the, the precise sounds, the, the kind of associations, the, the, the way that the audience should be looking and the kind of speed that the audience is looking. Like every genre of, um, of um, drama has got a different speed. Um, so for something which is more tragic, you want to find a, a, something, a way of shocking people into an imaginative world where they really actually deepen their own uh, feelings and in their own associations. So that usually is actually fighting against a cliché or just trying to make something that they've never heard before I mean, I think also with, uh, like, even with volumes, you've got to find ways where um, it, it, it's all dynamic and structural, so you want to um, hit something strong at the beginning of a scene or something and then be able to dive deep, deep underneath the words. And, but it's amazing, um, just a few notes on a, on a speech will transform that speech. It's the most extraordinary thing. When you're approaching something like this, does it start, I don't know, with a conversation with the director? Does it start by being sent the script and reading that through and, get, and getting clues? What's the, the research aspect? Because I know you, that you have 
you know, you take this really seriously and you, you develop yeah. techniques and approaches to each project and you do your research and a lot of thought goes into it. So does it start with the script or might it start with a conversation? Not so much reading the script. It's really trying to understand the absolute essence of what the play is um, or what the, what the argument is or what, where the thing lives. So to do that, you've, you've got to use, obviously, your, all of your own experiences, but you have to really know what the meaning of the thing is so you can articulate that for an audience and help them feel it. Spoken to some uh, composers over the years, and, and some of them have mentioned, say, for film projects or even TV, you know, they'll create a score of a certain duration, and then things happen in the editing suite and things change. Yeah. So they have to, you have to go, go back, really, to make sure that it's still... Works. Have you been in that situation? I imagine you have over the Oh, years. no, of course. I mean, you, but you have to be able to use, uh, use all those situations and all kinds of mediums. I mean, um, like it's extraordinary how directors can see and feel very precisely. So you've really got to listen in all kinds of associative ways to what they want, but not necessarily what they say. Three decades ago, of course, when you started out, technology, you know, musical yeah. uh, composition was very different. And now you've got the bells and whistles, if you want to, yeah. you know, on your computer. But what about, I mean, are you still really fond of pure sound or discovering sounds outside of the studio and outside of the computer? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it hasn't helped at all. I think it's actually made it worse because there's lots of things that sound like music, but they aren't music. I mean, there, there is no sort of natural organic to it and I mean I'm always just trying to find extraordinary sounds when um, just walking around and things that have real association you can't get that out of a box I mean the more you get out of a box you, you end up with cliches and you end up with sort of but I mean if you really want to hone something precisely down you can't beat the power and the creativity of real musicians and um, the extraordinary sensitivity to sound and to and, and the way they listen it's the extraordinary beasts. I think Galileo, the, the, the project you're working on at the moment, is actually a really good example, John, yeah. of that kind of thinking. I mean, this, is, this includes going to a, the town hall pipe organ. I think that's got a role yeah. to play in your soundscape. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to um, be allowed to play on it earlier last year, actually. And um, it's an extraordinary animal, um, that pipe organ, um, but those, the, the low tones of it are... Um, so powerful that you hear them at the back of the hall as sort of like some vib- some kind of vibration. And um, I'm, I was fascinated by the power of organs. And, I mean, they say that uh, you can hit one note and people just automatically cry. There's just a physical response in your body. With Galileo, um, there's lots of conversations about power. I'm fascinated by how that works in, um, in religious music. So the sounds from the organ, how have you use those? Manipulated them? or No, no, not at all. No, I'm I'm trying to make everything as acoustically pure as possible. So um, uh, we'll just be recording the the, the very, very low, those very, very low sounds that are vibrating and um, just let them, put them in the theatre in a a space that's almost like being in a cathedral. I I was really lucky. Um, I happened to fall into an experience where I was in Notre Dame on on Easter and um, I walked into the cathedral and it was absolutely extraordinary experience because there was tourists, but there was also a mass going on. I suddenly realised <laughs> how it all worked. I mean, when you think about the Catholic Church, they, they, um, there was no language, it was in Latin. It was actually about space, beauty and especially music. So it was about actually making an experience where people totally experienced God or felt, or felt like, like they did. And in, in this service, they, um, it was all sung, of course, but there was beautiful French folk song 
and the power of the room. It's, 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 the earliest ritual, really, is a, a musical ritual, is a, is a mass. What sound does is it makes us feel, and so therefore we feel and we believe without any words, and you can't shake that. Bells, of course, we associate also often with churches, and you're using bells in your composition? Yeah. The task with this show, really, is to show what uh, Galileo was up against, which is power in many ways, and, and it's, the, it's obviously specifically the power of the church. But when you think about the, the, um, the Catholic Church, especially in its earliest days, it controlled every aspect of somebody's, uh, somebody's life in terms of time, um, in terms of what they did on each day. The church totally managed to talk to everybody, and, and that's... It's intriguing how power gets mixed up with that, you know. You are, I think, using a mass from, what, 1610? And yeah, then, well, this, and then uh, doing something very original with it. Yeah, yeah, so this is what I tend to find happens with, uh, luckily with me, is that once I, I really start diving into these things, things start appearing. So I was at my father's house, and he happened to have a record, um, which was the Mass of St. Sylvester, which is a reconstruction of a 1610 mass. And 1610 was when Galileo made his great discovery. And I thought, oh my, that's extraordinary that that was there. And then I thought, well, how can I show this as a piece of power? Because in Brechtian theatre, you've got to be very, you've got to just show things. um, It's it's like a gesture or a shock. So how can I do this in a few seconds? How can I make some statement about the power of the church? And and also, you know, it's like the corruption of the church as well. So anyway, I, I was luckily in, in Dunedin and saw my great friend David Kilgar, who's a genius, of course. And um, I said, well, look, David, I'd just love you to play some, some sounds right across this uh, beautiful mass. And uh, he loved the idea, and, and he did. And, of course, he, he always makes something extraordinary. So that was, that was a real treat to be able to do that. I see, too, as part of your thinking process that you're wanting to convert the theatre to give that surround sound. I mean, what you're creating sounds very powerful and it could come at you from the front, you know, of the yeah. stage yeah. And, and wash over you and be very powerful. So why yeah. go to all this trouble of basically turning this into, into quadraphonic music? Is that, is that another reference to the power? Well, it's reference to space. So that's the other thing that the church controlled. In those, in those cathedrals, you went in, into a limitless, infinite space. And part of the, the beauty of the sound was that in those incredible reverberant rooms, it's hard to hear the source. So you, it's, it's, the music is in the air, so it's sort of inside you. I just really wanted to try and make an acoustic environment where, I don't know if you'll be able to pull it off, but I mean, that does feel like you want, you're wandering into a huge space. And, and there's a statement of power in that. These are a big, intense sounds, John, that you're creating. Yeah. <laughs> so will there be moments, I'm assuming, that the actor doesn't have to you know, fight against the no, sound no. to be heard, that there are, there are moments, if I say stillness, it might be of action on stage, but that the music simply takes over and tells a big part of this story of power and domination and from Galileo's perspective. Well, of course, this, this is where you, the comments you're talking about before, you know, where do you put music and how it works. So I've only got a few, sort of 50 seconds maybe bet- between um, between scenes to, to make some of these statements. And that's, there's, there's a wonderful precision in that. So it's like you get, you get a huge cinemascope 
um, I'm hoping anyway, huge cinemascope kind of oral image, and then it's being um, it goes down to a typewriter and I think a bell. So like it's um, it's, it's it's almost like a, a gesture, you know. I mean, so you're getting these musical sort of haikus, if you like. I suspect that you get this passionate about all of these projects, like something like 200 original scores and the sound design that you do and, yeah. and composition. But that excitement, I guess it, it doesn't get old for No, you. no, it doesn't because, it, because every single one's new. And, I mean, and people are astonishing in terms of what they're trying to achieve. And it's an absolute gift to be involved in different worlds. And I'm just hungry for that. And every single one requires the same kind of depth, really. Even if it's a comedy, you've got to... There's a precision about every single form, and there's a way that you can do it with um, with humour and and, um, and touch people. Or you know, so that's it's it, they're always a challenge, and, and it's always new, which is why I love it so much. I imagine there's what more opportunity for film and television these days than there are for theatre. You know, uh, theatre budgets are pretty tight, and bringing in yep. you know original composition and sound design can be quite an ask. So, has most of your work been on screen? Um, on screen, no, not at all. Um, I, I've done um, I've done two big films. I've did uh, Reign of the Children with Vincent, and I've did a score for James Ashcroft's um, Coming Home in the Dark, which I think is coming out uh, um, this August. But that was um, uh, went to Sundance. It actually was a very similar approach with uh, James's piece. Um, uh, this extraordinary uh, musician um, Marcel Beard had invented a machine called a shim saw, which is a wooden frame with. Um, very large, thick saw blade in a string, um, putting through an extraordinary Concord, a 1970s New Zealand Concord amp. And you you play it with um, bows, uh, cello bow, violin bow, and it's an extraordinary sound source because it's delicate, but it also can really howl if it needs to. And the other instrument we used was um, a bowed piano, which Hermione Johnson played. And that's in a grand piano, you put, you put sticks inside the strings and then you play them with your fingers. So it's got this extraordinary sound. I mean, I think the thing is that we're so, we've, we hear so much stuff. What you want to do is hear something you've never heard before and then you can fall into your own imagination. And I think you've really got to fight to find things that have never been heard before. And there's plenty of them. We started about the fact that you were, you know, you were a musician when you came into this um, yep. idea of, of composing for stage and screen. Uh, but I do see, reading up on you, that we can look forward to an album of songs. Yep. Have you gone back to to being a musician, a jobbing musician as well? Well, I mean, <laughs> again, this was another little project. This, uh, the album's called Blow for Humanity, and I recorded in, in Dunedin and the Albany Studios there before they pulled them down. Oh, I grew up in those studios, man. Oh, well, there That's where you I go, started for ZB. I was brokenhearted yeah. to see yeah. they'd gone last time I was down home. I know, I know. And look, I mean, it was an absolute joy to, to play in there. and But uh, the the whole thing is a concept in a way because... My passion is is live uh, um, live music and and it's the sound of, of musicians playing. So the way we did it was um, I worked with each musician individually for a month and then we had one day in the studio where we we uh, rehearsed and then we recorded for three days and we recorded nineteen songs. But the idea of that was to try and catch the the extraordinary creativity when a song the first is formed and especially the playing. So some some of the songs start with drum solos. They're really, really rich sonically, and they're absolutely live. We didn't use headphones. We just actually played in the room. And it was also a tribute to that room. You know, it's a, it was a copy of Abbey Road, for goodness sake, you know. Um, and New Zealand, and especially Dunedin, has got beautiful temples of sound, these extraordinary sonic spaces. And that's a, that's a real part of uh, music that's being lost, I think, with um, multi-purpose venues, um, 
venues with no natural acoustic, it's not true that you can copy the, the, these things and put them with, with effects. It just doesn't make you feel the same way. Composer John Gibson. The Life of Galileo opens at the ASB Waterfront Theatre in Auckland on Tuesday. And I see that Canterbury Museum has just opened a hands-on exhibition called Galileo Scientist Astronomer Visionary, showcasing his revolutionary discoveries. Sounds like lots of fun. In the next hour, we are at the movies with Simon Morris. I'll talk to playwright Justin Eid about his new play, about the contentious uh, Wairo Afray, and how important are voices to a stage or screen actor. After the news at two, our our love track yesterday is animator Julian Stokoe. His new uh, TV series for children, The Vloggingtons, uses both child voice talent and some of our top comedians. Also talking to Lucy Mulgan about the joys of writing operas for children.